Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. All right. Well, before we get started, just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, my colleague Matt Langston and I, you might know Matt from previous episodes we've done together. You will also know him as the host of the Eleventy Life podcast, as the front man of the bands Eleventy Seven and the Jelly Rocks. He is a producer, a musician, and a really extraordinary creator. Well, we are working on building a podcast network together as an extension of his music label, Rock Candy Recordings. So right now, it is just the two of us. It is Sacred Tension and uh, Eleventy Life. But we are looking for other podcasters who would like to join us. If you are a creator and you want to start a podcast or you already have a podcast, if you join our network in return, you will get professional consultation from the studio. We will promote each other's work. We are really trying to create a community of creators who can support each other, who can make some really amazing stuff together. Uh, We're looking for artists with a very high standard of quality and who are able to commit to a regular podcasting schedule. And we are searching for topics from everything from comedy to religion to politics. I mean, really just about anything will do as long as it is thoughtful and well done and we think it would be a good fit for the show. So if this interests you, I would love to hear your ideas. I would love to listen to your podcast. And please reach out to me. You can message me on Twitter at Stephen B. Long. You can find me on Instagram at Stephen Bradford Long. Or you can just send me an email via my website, stephenbradfordlong.com. I would absolutely love to see whatever you've got and see if it would be a good fit for Rock Candy. I'm really, really excited about what we are trying to create here. So if that interests you, please reach out to me. And I can't wait to see what you send me. All right. Other pieces of news. My Patreon, as usual, is up and running. And this show really is a part-time job in addition to my full-time job. Plus, I'm a yoga teacher. So I'm I'm staying busy every week. I'm, I'm pretty nuts. And this show is only possible because of my patrons who are able to support me month to month to help me get interesting conversations out there into the world. If you are interested in joining their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for $5 a month or even $1 a month, uh, you can support this show. You can support my ongoing work and what I'm trying to build here, uh, not just with Sacred Tension, but also with Rock Candy Recordings. And in return, you will get a separate patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics, in which Justin and I have very unedited and probably unsafe conversations uh, about everything under the sun, uh, but particularly pertaining to faith and doubt and the deconstruction process. If you are financially struggling right now, which I completely understand a lot of us are in that position, uh, there are other ways you can support this show. If you have a blog, you can write about it. 
If you have your own podcast, you can discuss it. If you are on social media, you can share it. And if you have friends, share it with your friends. Also, a really practical way you can support this show, please just go to iTunes and rate it five stars. Uh, leave a nice review if you want to. But at the very least, give it five stars. That is enormously helpful. It gets the eye of the algorithms and helps, uh, helps to boost my show and broaden the audience. Okay. Well, moving on to today's show. Today I'm talking to David Yosis. He is a former Catholic priest. And I sent out a tweet earlier this year, uh, I believe it was several months ago now, after the grand jury report from Pennsylvania was released about the Catholic sex abuse scandal there in Pennsylvania. I wanted someone who is knowledgeable about this subject, about the subject of the Catholic sex abuse scandal, to come on and talk about it with me. And David Yosis, who is a listener of the show and a reader of the blog, volunteered to come on. And I'm really grateful he did because he's obviously been thinking about this for a very long time. I thought his insights were really very profound. It, it goes without saying that this is a huge topic, that the problem of priestly sexual abuse within the Catholic Church is huge and ancient and complicated, and I'm sure we barely scratched the surface, and I'm sure that there are many experts who would uh, maybe contest some of what David said, but I personally found David's thoughts insightful, and I hope to keep having more conversations because this is a, such a huge topic. I will link the grand jury report in the description, but with the warning that the horrors within it are really overwhelming. The magnitude of this scandal, it is huge, it is horrific, it is devastating, and the Catholic Church's response to it has, by and large, been grotesque and corrupt and absolutely amoral. And I say in general, that isn't always the case, but in general, the Catholic Church's response has not been very good. I really wonder about the future of the Catholic Church within the United States, within the developed world, as more scandals like these are unearthed. And basically what the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report reveals is that this was common practice. You know, the abuse of minors— Sexual abuse in general, misbehaving priests, and then the hierarchy covering it up. That It wasn't just a few bad dioceses. It was all dioceses. It wasn't just, you know, a few bad priests or a few bad leaders. It was the whole structure that was corrupt, that is corrupt. And I really wonder about the future of the Catholic Church within the United States. I wonder how they will get through this. I bet they will because they're so huge and so ancient and so powerful, but they probably won't get through without some great loss. All right. Well, with that said, I, I, I think it's needless to say that if you have a history of sexual abuse or if you find this topic particularly difficult right now, uh, this might not be the episode for you. We do get into some details of the sexual abuse scandal, and David Yosa shares his insights and what he saw from when he was in the priesthood. All right. Well, with that, I am delighted to give you my conversation with David Yosis. All right. Well, I'm here with David Yosis. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you. Yeah. So just some quick backstory here. We are going to be talking about the Catholic sex abuse scandal. I read parts of the Pennsylvania grand jury report on mm -hmm. the sex abuse scandal there. And then I sent out a tweet asking if there's anyone that could speak with some authority on this subject. And you sent me an email. And so thank you so much for doing that I'm so glad you reached out. No, thanks. It's uh, it's it's definitely a, an interesting subject. It's something I've uh, have seen a lot about, and I guess I guess we can you know we can talk about you know how that came to be, but also you know it's something that I've that I've been been following as well. Yeah, absolutely. So just some very very quick stuff here. The uh, recent grand jury report out of Pennsylvania, I think it dropped in like 
August, and it was this massive investigation into decades of sexual abuse on the parts of the hierarchy, the Catholic hierarchy, uh, within the state of Pennsylvania. And basically what it revealed was more horrific and more egregious than the original report that came out in, I believe it was 2000 with the Spotlight Report. Just more devastating in scope, if that's even possible. It was the Spotlight Report by the Boston Globe back in 2000 that, or 2000, 2001, that almost sank, you know, that that really devastated the Catholic Church in the United States. Well, now there's another one, and basically what this is showing is that it wasn't just a few bad dioceses, it wasn't just a few bad archdiocese, it wasn't just, it was, this was common practice in the Catholic Church. So this is huge. This is gargantuan. And so just from there, tell us some about who you are and and why you might have something to say to this subject. <laughs> sure. Well, um, so I was, or, I was ordained as a Catholic priest in 1987, and I worked as a Catholic priest for nine years, and I left in 1996 uh, for, for, for a number of different reasons, not because I was involved in in any of the scandals uh just to be clear i uh although i'm a gay man i was celibate the whole time that i was uh that i was a catholic priest but the this whole issue has been around for 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 actually actually for quite some time and actually was right before i was ordained when you when you say for quite some time do you mean decades or do you mean like centuries (laughs) (laughs) well Well, you know, I mean, if you look at the Protestant Reformation, I mean, if you, if you look at one of the reasons why, you know, Martin Luther argued for the ordination of clergy is because there was so much scandal right. surrounding surrounding uh, the behavior of priests. Right. And, and so, and, you know, the norm that Catholic priests had to be celibate, including including the parish priests, not just, you know, monks and people who, who belong to religious orders, but but also the the idea that parish priests had to be celibate really doesn't go back much before the year 1000. And so, you know, during the middle and 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 was never really, I think during the middle ages was never really necessarily practiced everywhere. And so, you know, the idea that, you know, Catholic priests are behaving badly is something that's kind of been around for a while. But in uh, the mid-80s, there was sort of the first of these sort of systematic issues that were revealed. There was one particular priest in uh, a diocese in Louisiana who uh, there were there was uh, there were some press reports that he had. Uh, abused quite a number of children. Now, is this the the diocese that you were part of? No, this was in this was in Louisiana. I was in I was in the diocese of uh, Bridgeport in Connecticut. Okay, but this uh, was at the same time. This was in the right. same time period. Okay, got it. Right. So 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 right when I was ordained, the first sort of uh, thing that I had done was a uh, gosh would have been I guess it would have been the summer of '86. Uh, I had come back from the seminary. I had come back from the diocese. It was a year before I was ordained. I, w- I was 24 at the time, and they had an annual lunch of priests in the Bridgeport diocese. And uh, the bishop at the time, you know, got up. So I was I was invited. I went to the lunch as uh, you know, uh, as a seminarian who was you know within a year of ordination. So it was really my first time meeting a lot of these people. And the bishop specifically talked about the fact that there were these press reports about this one priest <clears throat> in Louisiana who had uh, abused a number of children. And apparently the diocese had known about this and not done anything about it. And I remember the bishop saying, this is just a terrible thing, terrible lies that are being told in the in the press. You know, the media is always out to get us. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot, a lot of that rhetoric and you sort of immediately get that the sort of very defensive public tone that I think you you, you got from the Catholic church whenever this, whenever these sorts of things uh, came out and, and just it, I believe the first sort of real press attention was sort of in in the mid '80s. Although it has come out that there have that there were uh, reports, and there was a priest by the name of Thomas Doyle who worked for the uh, who worked for the Catholic Church uh, in the United States, the, the National Bishops Conference in Washington, and uh, he had, I believe, in 1985, sent a memo to all the bishops of the country saying, "This is a systematic problem. This this sort of behavior exists everywhere." It is a problem. It is going to continue to be a problem unless something is done about it. So this was something that was known, I think, but there was always a real effort to portray this as uh, an isolated problem. 
you know, as you said, it's you know, these are just a couple of bad actors, and you know, there are there are, I mean, there are, and, and it's true, there are abusers in all all walks of life and in all professions, and and you know, it's unfortunate that they exist in the clergy as well. But you know, but there's nothing systematic and nothing to see here. Please move move along. And yet, I think there was always a knowledge that these that these you know priests behaving badly is something that has existed for a long time. And certainly after I was ordained, I mean the the diocese that I was ordained was uh, so I was ordained in eighty seven, and our first case came out in I guess I would want to say nineteen ninety one ninety two something like that, where there were lawsuits filed again alleging that one particular priest had abused a number of children, and then after that there was just a flood of usually lawsuits because press wouldn't touch it the diocese wouldn't admit to anything but uh individual people who had you know just individual people who had been abused oftentimes years you know many years before got lawyers and sued the church and once one person does it then a number of other people would come in behind and in fact the diocese i worked in which is a relatively small diocese we had covered one county in connecticut i mean we have our own wikipedia page of the the Roman Catholic abuse scandal in the Bridgeport Diocese, and there were eventually, I, gosh, I would say at least 30 priests who were eventually accused of at least some impropriety, sexual impropriety, with minors at some point. Out so of that, how many priests within that diocese? Maybe 200, 250. That's huge. I mean, that's yeah. a huge number of abusers within a pool that small. That's in, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, and and and, and, and you know, so you say you know in in, in two thousand two you had local reporting in Boston, which was which was in the if you've seen the movie Spotlight, you you see that, but you see the things in Pennsylvania, and I think I I think in in areas where the Catholic Church tends to be uh, stronger and where the sort of culture of respect and untouchability that that often surrounds priests that you know, you know you would never say a bad thing about a catholic priest you know in areas that are heavily catholic where that sort of culture was very strong are the places where you see the abuse was both most prevalent and not really addressed i will say though after 2002 and after all of the revelations that came out of boston um which eventually led to the resignation of the the cardinal who was the bishop in boston which is one of the largest uh, catholic dioceses in the country after that the catholic bishops in the United States did adopt a number of policies that sort of were a zero tolerance uh, for abusive priests. And since then, I think the the amount of 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 at least abusive children has really has really diminished greatly. I believe if you look at the Pennsylvania report, almost all of it comes from before 2002. To give something of a timeline here, so really there was rampant sexual abuse until the Spotlight team through the through the uh, Boston Boston Globe did a huge story and their investigation just lasted for like I think a year or two. Like it was it was this long ongoing thing and then as a response the Catholic Church uh, put in the these internal systems to stop sexual abuse. However, and this is and you know when I talk about it, that's often brought up to me that hey, look, the Catholic Church did something about this, so the Catholic Church isn't you know isn't the monster that so many people say it is. What I struggle with there is, did they do that only because they were caught? If there was no <laughs> Boston Globe, you know, if there was no Spotlight report, then would they would it still be business as usual? And did the Catholic Church, you know, we have seen this drastic lowering of the numbers of abuse since 2002 but is that really only because the catholic church was caught well i i think hmm yes and no okay uh, <laughs> i think i think it certainly required some some external pressure for the catholic for the for the leadership of the catholic church would, but you know, by, and by that I mean I mean the bishops who are basically the the people who are responsible in each each Catholic diocese or each each sort of district you know each each local local church it's it's really it's really the bishops who who I, I think did not respond well at all and continue I and I and I and I think continue not to respond very well to the broader question I think I think the, you know the abuse of minors is such a I mean, that's that's such a horrific thing 
And you really can't deny, once once you really see the extent of the problem, you can't deny that there needs to be something done about it. And so I think all of the policies that have been put in place were in response to something that would not have had, were in response to the perception of an issue, but it would not have been perceived as such a, a problem unless there was so much public unless there was so much public attention right. to it. So in a way, it was invisible to them. Yeah, it was. But but at the same time, you have a lot of, a lot of things um, where it wasn't necessarily invisible to them. And uh, so again, just you know, if I look at, at, at my own diocese, a lot of the lawsuits that came out during the 1990s and into, two th- into the 2000s talked a lot, there were, you know, there were a lot of documents that were released, which the, which the diocese fought very, very hard in the courts to not have these documents released. But there's, I mean, there's one sort of famous one of a priest in the early 1960s who was accused of who was, who was, I, I, let's, I don't know how graphic to get in all of this, but was, you can, uh, you can get, a, you <laughs> can get as graphic as you need to. And then I'll put a warning at the top of the show. <laughs> put a warning on it. But basically he was, uh, he was accused of abusing a, a college student where he was a college chaplain by biting him during oral sex. Okay. And so that was considered a bad thing, and the priest was sent away. I'm glad that so was considered a bad position. thing. Yes, <laughs> that was good. considered a bad thing. Good. Uh, <laughs> he was he he was sent away to a treatment facility because it was these were it was I think, and I think probably even beyond the Catholic Church at the time was largely thought of as a you know this is a moral failing. This is perhaps a psychological problem that needs treatment. It's not, you know, uh, it's not a legal problem. It's not a crime, quote unquote. Right. Uh, and it's not something that needs to be reported to the authorities. And we can talk maybe a little bit about why why that, you know, that the idea of getting civil authorities involved has been triggering for the Catholic Church for centuries. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so it was something that, you know, this is something we handle internally and that nobody needs to know about. And there's there was a famous memo from the clergy supervisor um, to the bishop about what was being done about this priest against whom there was this accusation. And the idea was that, well, he's been sent away to this treatment facility, and if any, it says in the memo, if any questions are raised about where Father so-and-so is, an attack of hepatitis is to be feigned. <laughs> really? <laughs> is what it said. Really? And this would have been, I think maybe, I, I'm guessing around 1964 or 5 or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact date. Wow. But, but, okay. but that was, you know, that was the, you know, but that was sort of the, the famous thing that came out. And everybody looks at that and says, okay, you know, we know that there's a problem. Yeah. And, you know, the bishops would have known that there is a problem. And I think that's one of the things that happened in the Pennsylvania case where they went kind of went through the archives of the written documentation. The locked and, archives, the secret archives. Right, right. exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, one of the things I, I read some significant parts of the Pennsylvania report too. And I mean, one of the things that was really shocking to me was the, uh, the letter from uh, the Bishop of Scranton to a priest who had been removed because he had impregnated uh, a teenage girl in his parish and had actually arranged for her to get an abortion, right. which is, you know, from the Catholic perspective, both of those are going to be pretty serious problems. Yes. And his his letter to the priest is, "I'm so sorry that you have had to go to go through this." Yeah, I remember this. So the letter to the priest from the bishop, the bishop told the priest, "I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this." Right, exactly. As a, and you know, people look at that and say, "Where you know?" First of all, it's clear that the bishop knew what was going on. Secondly, where's the compassion for the young girl? in this where's the compassion for the victim of this uh, abuse where's the compassion for all of the other potential victims that there are i mean you know why is the attention on 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 the on the priest right and i mean it's one thing to say you know as christians we're you know you know we we believe in forgiveness and we believe that you know no one is no one should be reduced you know to to the worst thing that they've ever done 
and that forgiveness is available to everyone. As Christians, we believe that. But as administrators of an institution, you also have to be responsive and protect and protect you know the the people, especially the most vulnerable people in the community first. And you know that was clearly lacking in these documents that have come out, especially from that time. And I think again, I think that to be fair, I think a lot some of that has changed, especially when it when it comes to the abuse of minors. So when you were there, mm-hmm. when when you were a priest and you were you were within the hierarchy, what did you see in terms of culture? What personal experience, what personal insight do you have about this, you know, this horrific phenomenon? What insight do you have and what did you see within that culture, individual with with individuals and at large? Sure. I think I think I saw a couple of things. First, it's extremely important to Catholics, uh, you know, and, and I th- and I think a lot of you know, there's a lot of people who I know, I know, you know, Stephen, you have an evangelical background, and if I if I if I remember correctly, reading some of your some of your work, I think you had a Catholic phase uh, for a while. Yeah, yeah, and and it's kind of stuck to me, you know. It, I'm, it's, it's part, it's like flypaper. It's, it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> some of it has stuck onto me, and and now I'm I'm in the Anglican tradition, and that's largely because I I did almost convert. Okay, yes. So, so you know, but I think I, I think a lot of people who come from evangelical tradition are kind of you know are often taught to wonder you know are Catholics even Christians and right um, you know is this you know you know the horror of Babylon or or something like that and yeah. and a lot of these stories kind of fit into that narrative and I think it's I think it's important to recognize that you know Catholics are Christians Catholics read the Bible Catholics believe in God's grace but Catholics also believe very strongly in the grace of God being being communicated through the community of the church and through the institution of the church. Yes, in a way that isn't true for Protestants. Yeah, I think that's largely correct. I think yeah. I think the idea that that you know God's grace is available and which is not to say that God's grace is not available outside the Catholic Church and outside the, the institutional structure, but we know that it's available within the structure. Exactly, and so and so, it's comfortable and safe to be in the structure, and because then you know that you have God's grace, and so I think because of that, it's important to maintain people's belief in the goodness and the inst- and 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 the holiness of the church. And so, when these things, when when bad things happen, the most important thing is that people not start to doubt and lose their faith in the church, because if they if that happens, then the whole thing comes apart. And that really is going to be damaging to, to, to people if they lose if they begin to lose their faith that they're that, that they have access to God and access to God's grace and forgiveness and, and, and life in God through the church. If you think that you're gonna lose that, you're in trouble. And so therefore what's most important is that people perceive the church well. And if the reality falls short of that, well, we all know that the, we all fall short of, of of who we want to be, and you know we know that the reality of the church always falls short of that. So as long as nobody finds out about bad things that happen, we can deal with it. And so one of the things that I just I I found you know pretty consistently is there's a real you know there's a real idea that you know bad things can happen. But nobody needs to know about one church. I went. I, I went to work at the pastor there had founded the church. Uh, he's 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 deceased now. But uh, you know he had founded the church. He was probably in his early seventies at the time. And he's you know he, he looked at me. He said, "Oh, you're the first normal one that they've sent me to be an assistant." He said, "I, I think the last ten or twelve that I've had, they've all been gay." You're the first normal one, and I was I was pretty closeted at the time, and he was so happy <laughs> uh, that I didn't want huh. to break the news to him. I didn't want to break the news yeah. to him and come out to him. So and and so 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 I, I kind of let it go. But I mean, he just told me one story after another of these horrific things that had happened. Of you know you know not only priests being drunk, but people people having parties at the house and the police being called and the you know people in the parish would tell me stories about father so-and-so and how he had really organized the altar boys and given them these really fancy outfits to wear and you know it was really impressive and i'm like that just sounds really creepy to me yeah. but there were all these things happening and it was sort of like even if there was something that was strange about it or problematic about it 
nobody said anything and sort of everybody agreed not to talk about it and mm-hmm. even this one priest would would tell me stories of when he was a young priest and this would have been in the early 1950s you know of of him being assigned to a church where the pastor was drunk all the time and you know the bishop had to come and you know the priest would get arrested for driving drunk and you know they have to quickly work with the police to cover that up so nobody would find out about it and so i i, I think there's this there's this sense of where dishonesty kind of kind of creeps into the system mm, yeah and living with a certain degree of hypocrisy sort of becomes becomes part of the expectation and okay what really happens and what people know and find out about can be different, and that's okay. Because after, and, and, and you know, I mean, there's, there's part of it that sort of says, you know, you need a certain amount of hypocrisy to get through life. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, I don't need to tell you all the worst things I've ever done. You don't need to tell me all the worst things you've ever done. You know, everybody, everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody needs grace. And so why do we need to get into this? And, you know, some of that, some of that I think has a place but in my experience, it was something that was just pervasive in right. in, in in the culture of the church. And even where you know things had happened, you know, there's another church I worked at where they had a, a high school retreat program. And I, I don't know if you've I, I presume a lot of churches you know do these things where you know high school kids go away for a weekend for a retreat, and they those can be very emotional, powerful experiences, and therefore they can be really, really open to abuse and manipulation. Absolutely, yes. And I remember this one church I went at, they had an established program, and so, you know, because I was assigned to this church, and I was the young priest, so I was assigned to work with the high school program. And a lot of times, you know, and I remember this, remember people talking about one priest who had been there in the past, and would say, well, you know, Father so-and-so used to do, and they told me all these very things that sounded incredibly creepy and emotionally uh, abusive and manipulative things that this priest used to do mm. and they said you know you're not like him you, you know you you know they would do these things you know he used to do all these things and people the kids used to love it and i'm like yeah no i'm just really not comfortable with that and what, what kind of things uh you know just in terms of hugging or yeah. stuff that was just like really just sort of you know emotional over the top too much type of stuff like too much stuff yeah. and you know shortly after i left i read in the newspaper that he was one of the priests who had been identified uh, as having been accused of abuse of a minor and and was and and had been removed from ministry so i mean you know that didn't come as a surprise to me because there was this sort of culture of you know you can do these things and since everybody respects the priest and everybody respects the church there can't be anything wrong with it and so we we won't pay attention to to finding out that there is a problem so this kind of gets to I think the real challenge here, the real mystery, and I've just heard so many answers and so many, you know, attempts to answer this question. Clearly, the Catholic Church has, and the hierarchy has cultural flaws kind of baked into it right now, and and has for a very long time, that protects criminality, that protects abuse. Why sexual abuse in particular? Of... Of all the things that they, I mean, you know, and I have no question that other sorts of crime go on in the Catholic Church in various places, but why this? Why yeah. sexual abuse? And what is it about the Catholic Church that attracts or protects them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I, and I think, you know, one of the obvious things that some people talk about is celibacy, which I don't think in itself is the problem. The fact that that, that priests have to be celibate, I, I I think it's I think it's bigger than that. And I and I I also think just from my experience, you know, it's not just it's not just sexual abuse of minors, although that obviously you know has been a big issue in the past. But there's a lot of manipulation of vulnerable people and a lot of abuse of power that takes place. And I just you know again just sort of an example. I remember the I guess when I was a seminarian, um, this would have been the summer of '85. Uh, I was sent to a church for a summer internship, uh, and they had absolutely no idea what to do with me. So I didn't do very much of anything, uh, and I didn't know <laughs> I had no idea what to do. But you know you, you live in the house with the priests, and so again I was like you know and, and I had you know just sorry to maybe this is too much you know too much too much backstory but uh no you're you good know, when when um one of the things i see now uh seeing in in a lot of in, in protestant 
denominations, people who go into seminary are, you know, they're expected to pay their own way, and you sort of, you know, you live on your own, and you're you're supporting yourself while you're working your way through seminary, and then eventually, hopefully, you you get a call, and you know, then then you're working. But Catholic priests are formed in a seminary where you you live in the seminary. Your your life is part of a, is part of the community of the people in the seminary, and you are sort of separated from from lay people and real people. And <laughs> not that priests aren't real people, but you know, no, but that's, I, I but get non hierarchy. You know, so so you are yeah. enmeshed. You become in a way part exactly. of the hierarchy from the very beginning. Exactly. And so you know, so so I was I was here. I had no tuition bills, no room and board bills. But also, I had no money. So I was in this church, and the pastor gave me, he paid me in cash. That's odd. Yeah. Whoever worked for a, an organization or church where you get paid in cash. Well, this priest was was later accused and removed from ministry for sexual abuse of teenagers, but also for stealing money from the church. Huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there were there were other situations. One of the churches I worked at, there were two church, two Catholic churches in the town. The other one, the pastor there, was eventually, actually, I believe, arrested and served time in prison for stealing well over $100,000 from the church. Oh, my uh, God. Of which he was the pastor, which he then used, apparently, to, to buy uh, an apartment with his boyfriend, uh-huh. who was an adult, and so that wasn't sexual abuse of minors. Right. So, and... So he had this whole sort of secret life going on. And so I think I think this sort of abuse of power is part of the problem. You know, and, and I think that's that also is true in, you know, I've 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 seen this, you know, both when I was a Catholic priest and outside of that in other church contexts where as Christians People believe there's something, you know, you don't exercise power too directly because, after all, God is in charge. And after all, you know, Jesus gave up power. You know, he emptied himself and became a servant. And so the Pope is the servant the servant of the servants of God, and we have servant leadership. And so we're not really exercising power over people, when in fact they are. Yeah, when the reality is that the Pope yeah. is and the Vatican is one of the last absolute monarchies to exist. <laughs> sure, and if you can't, and if you can't, and if you can't be honest about the fact that you're exercising power, and you can't name power when it's being exercised, you also don't see its abuse. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's true, and that, and that's not just the Catholic Church. I mean, that's I think that you see that in basically any kind of church, and, and lots of other institutions as well. So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is theologically, the Catholic Church, because it has an all male priesthood. Because it sees the institution of the church as being very male-centered, can be, and increasingly, I think, in recent years, in order to justify that, has increasingly become reliant on a real theology of complementarity. Yes, I think I think so, too. I don't think that was as big of a thing in the Catholic Church until the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, when, when was the theology of the body written? Because that, to me, yeah. is when that... Came, that became yeah. front and center. Yes. You know, I don't know the history of the theology of the body, but of course, there was the sex, sexual revolution, there was feminism, there was the, the shifting of gender roles within Western countries, and kind of as a result, the traditional institutions as a whole kind of mm -hmm. doubled down. Yeah, and I and I think that's right, and I think you you sort of see. I mean, I don't think you. It has a bit of a different flavor in the Catholic Church than I think it does in a lot of evangelical or even even mainline Protestant churches, where you, you know I, I don't think, for example, you know the idea the idea, for example, of the headship of the of of the man. You know that you know that you know that the that the man is the head of the house and the wife is the wife is the is the servant of the man and is you know that that sort of thing which you see in a lot of sort of which you see very in the evangelical role, that's never been an important part of the Catholic tradition. And mm. I think if you go back far enough, I mean, if you go back far enough, if you go back to people like, you know, Thomas Aquinas, you ask Thomas Aquinas, why can't women be priests? And he would say, right up, you know, Thomas Aquinas is sort of the, the, the classical Catholic theologian from the 13th century. And if you go back to Aquinas, you say, why can't women be priests? He says, well, because they're inferior to men and because right. women can't exercise authority right. over men, which was a common cultural conception well into the 20th century. Right, whereas today, for, right. and, today we today need to spin it differently, where it's like, right. no, they, it, isn't, it isn't that women are inferior, it's that they, there are these different preordained 
roles. It's almost like metaphysical alchemy yes. where these things have to be perfectly aligned spiritually to be aligned with, you know, like this platonic heavenly alignment of Christ and church and all that. So, right. and if and if you get the alchemy wrong, then it's just going to fuck everything up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, and, and, and I have to say, I mean, for me, I mean, you know, certainly my coming to terms with being gay and and having a process of wanting to wanting to sort of you know live openly and, and come out and not be celibate anymore that was that was certainly part of my decision to leave the priesthood but to be honest one of the big catalysts for me was in 1994 when the Vatican basically put out that it was going to start enforcing as a required thing that you had to believe in order to be a Catholic was the the all-male priesthood it wasn't just something the fact that you know priests could only be men is just something that we do because right. we've always done it because we've always done it and because it would require a consent Census to change it, but it is in fact something that you have to believe that it must be this way, and it's it's and it's it's it it was articulated in this in this way of well because when the priest says this is my body at mass, or when the priest says I forgive you your sins in confession, the priest is not actually speaking for himself. The priest is speaking for Jesus. Yes, because. If I say this is my body, it doesn't become my body, it becomes Jesus's body, it becomes the body of Christ. And so, it's Christ who's speaking, and therefore, it's the priest is speaking in the name of Christ, and therefore he has to be like Christ. Okay. And so he has to be like Jesus, and Jesus, of course, was male, and so therefore the priest must be male. And I looked at that and I said, you know, that is really heretical, if you look, think about that, in terms of the history of the Church. Yes, it is. Because the I whole totally idea is agree. Because Jesus saves us by being a human being. Exactly. That's that's traditional Trinitarian theology, you know, going back to Athanasius in the 4th century, you know, what is not assumed by Christ is not saved by Christ. So he assumes all of humanity in all of its diversity and all of its expressions. And if women aren't part of the humanity of Jesus, well then, you know, how can they be how can they be saved? So that's so so I mean that to, to sort of say that, you know, Jesus saves saves us not by being human but by being male. Yeah. I mean, that's really strange to me and I think something that's not consistent with 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 Catholic teaching. And so I mean that that to me was a real was a real catalyst for my own personal sort of coming to terms with what I was doing and what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Um was was that particular thing. So I think this this sense of patriarchy and John Paul II, who was the Pope from nineteen seventy eight until two thousand five, he had been a philosophy professor in Poland and had really sort of personally sort of opened up to a lot of different strains of European continental philosophy, which is not, you know, really something to get in here in, in, in that were sort of, you know, sort of different from mainstream Catholicism. And he had personally developed, even before he became Pope, he had just sort of personally developed Developed this sort of very metaphysical, ontological uh, theory about about our embodiedness as human beings, and gender complementarity was a very strong part of that. Yeah, this is something he personally developed in the fifties and sixties. He becomes the pope. He's in this situation now where you know we can't defend the all male priesthood based on a strict hierarchy that men are superior to women, and so he he then. It, as the Pope tries to explain that using his own personal theology. And so you do get a lot of this sort of very, very strong gender complementarian theology that 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 really I think in the 1980s becomes and and the, in, into the, and, and through the 90s becomes sort of a pervasive explanation of everything and I think once you have that strong sense of gender complementarity I think it also becomes much a lot more difficult to see a lot of sexual issues and your approach to them I think becomes different yeah uh, you know I remember in the in the sort of in the late 60s it was right after I left um, but I remember reading this article where the the card it was an American cardinal who uh, had gone over to serve full time in the Vatican to be in charge of the office on sort of family life issues, which would be basically all the culture war issues. Yeah, <laughs> and he was in charge of the Vatican policy on that. And there's a custom at the beginning of of 
of the Catholic Mass, where most most Catholic altars, and the story is, I'm not sure this is true, but the story is it goes back to the catacombs, when they celebrated Mass in the catacombs, where the altar would, would be the tomb of a Christian martyr. Yes. And so, within most altars in Catholic churches, there is a relic of some martyr or some other saint. And so, part of the ritual is, at the beginning of the Mass, when the priest comes in, when the priest approaches the altar, he kisses the relic in the altar. Mm. That's just, and it's the kissing of the relic, it's not, thing, and that's that's just sort of a tradition that's been there since God knows how long. And or forever, yeah. And and so, and so, you know, but it's it's just something that people do and rarely talk about. Yes. Um, and and what what what, what uh, this cardinal who had been he was in the Vatican doing all this family life stuff, and he's he gave a talk where he said, you know, it really it can't be that the priest can be married because when the priest begins mass, he kisses the altar. How can he kiss the altar and then go and kiss his wife? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, some bizarre thinking i'm like how can you sexualize something like that i mean that's that's and then also i started thinking because because when, once you start going down that road you do start sexualizing a lot of things in a right. way that are really kind of creepy yes, and yes absolutely and, and and that was something that that i i had a lot of trouble with <laughs> you know, and again huh. i don't think i don't think most catholics think that way i don't want to i don't want to give that impression i don't want to you know suggest that this is a real um a real issue in terms of how you know most ordinary people think but i think there is that strain of thought that i think allows all of all of the other issues to be a problem and i think one of the other mm. things so it, it, so before we move on to the other thing let me just let me just make sure that i'm that I'm hearing this right because this is really interesting and and so let me see if I can kind of pull apart these strands because because there there is this weird profound disconnect from just kind of lived sexuality where a priest would be somehow cheating on someone either god or a wife for kissing a dead relic that because there are that there is that that distance from reality there's that there's that stepping away there's that filter between a priest and sexual reality that then within that space it becomes easier to to uh to make abuse of a minor seem more theoretical or more spiritual or more rationalized or disconnected from from lived sexuality because there's already this framework within certain parts of the hierarchy where sexuality is just it, it the the theory and, and the belief around sexuality is is disjointed and weird and disconnected and not very very plugged into reality. And because of that, it can enable a place for men who are already celibate, for men who are already struggling with their sexual orientation, or men who who might legitimately even just be psychopaths, who might be sociopaths. One percent of the human population is sociopathic, and that's predominantly men. It creates a place where where this disconnect can happen and it is culturally acceptable. Am I following? Am I tracking? Yeah, I think I yeah I I think that's right. And, okay. I, and I think you know and 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 one of the things that that I think is just you know having experienced in my own life now you know uh, you know being in a mainline Protestant church myself now um, you know one of the things about the Catholic Church is that while it is very patriarchal in the sense of having this sense of a strong sense of gender complementarity and gendering things that really shouldn't be gendered. Yes. At the same time, it's also not heteronormative in the way that a lot of Protestant churches are. The idea that the Protestant pastor who is the father of his family and the wife to or the uh, the husband to his wife and and his family life becomes a model for the for the congregation and so the only way to be a good pastor is to be a good father and a good husband mm. and a good patriarch within your family I mean none of that is within the Catholic Church um, for centuries in the Catholic Church women were able to achieve a lot of power and autonomy by not being married and by being by joining Catholic religious orders that was something that was was really not part of the Catholic not not part of the Protestant tradition that's true yeah um and so it, it because it's not heteronormative and that was one of the things for me I mean for me as for me as someone who uh, you know 
I I sort of always knew I was gay, but I never I never liked using that word about myself until I was you know into my twenties because you know gay people were those you know crazy people in San Francisco who who you know marched on in those weird outfits on Pride Day and right. Uh, yeah, you know, they were the yeah, ones in the, the Castro district doing, yeah, doing exactly. unseemly things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know, I'm I'm the least fabulous gay person that anyone has ever met. So you know, so it's <laughs> like, you know, that's just not my that's just not my, you know, um uh that's just not not where I saw my identity. And that was the only thing that you know, it was the only thing, you know, when I was growing up in the seventies and early eighties, the only thing that, you know, anybody ever did, you know, that that I ever knew existed. But, you know, to be in an all-male environment where nobody wanted to talk about any of this stuff was a really comfortable place for me. And I think I was grounded enough to eventually recognize that that was a problem before. And I I basically said, you know, I want to get out of this before I either get so depressed. And I was pretty depressed, I think, a lot of the time that I was a priest. I want to get out of this before I get so, so wrapped up into it that I have... I have I have no self left, um, and and I I really saw myself going in that direction, and said I'd better get out before I do something wrong, and and that's I would not that I would abuse children, but you know before I I I really can't look at myself in the mirror anymore and say you know I'm doing you know I'm I'm doing something good here I I really I really need to leave and go out, and and it's such an all encompassing view of the world. It was one of the things that, you know when I left it was. Um, it's it surprised me that one of the things that people thought was 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 so amazing was, you know, like like how did you find a place to live? And I'm like the same way all adult human beings find a place to live. You <laughs> look at the, <laughs> you look at the ads for apartments for rent and you go rent one. Right. And, like, <laughs> and so you know, and so other priests were saying this. Yeah, like you know, how did you do that? How did like, you do that? How did you find a place to live? How did so? Here's a question: how how many Men, how many other priests do you think were in that position of of being afraid, feeling afraid of being morally compromised in their own way, of feeling horribly depressed because they're gay in a setting where they can't talk about it? Or how many men do you think are in that situation or were? It's, it's hard to say. Okay. Um, you know the people who have the people who have studied this have said certainly. You know, and I think Richard Sipe is probably the the best known person he had just passed away this past summer but he was a former benedictine priest he was straight he was married um he was uh, a trained psychologist who had written several books studying the catholic clergy and celibacy in particular and his view was that probably half of all catholic priests actually were celibate and that half uh, half of all catholic priests Right, at, at least okay. at, at least at, at at you know at at some point in their ministry. Okay, were actually celibate and half were not. Um, his estimate was that probably around t- over time, probably about twenty percent of priests were gay, which okay. is certainly much higher than the, <laughs> the general population. The general population, but not certainly overwhelmingly so. But and that at certain during certain periods of time. Um, that that was that that was um, something that was uh, more you know perhaps perhaps even more than that um, certainly probably in my generation it was probably probably also closer to half would okay. be my guess I don't know but yeah and I and I think one of the other things too and I, I mean I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier I think one of the other elements of this that is really huge is during the sexual revolution and which was sort of happened at the same time in the sixties when. Catholic Church was doing a lot of renewal, Second Vatican Council, and so forth. Yes, yes. And one of the things that happened was Pope Paul VI set up a committee to study the Church's uh, historical teaching against contraception. And the committee, large majority of the committee, said the Catholic Church should change its teaching on contraception, and that was leaked to the media in 1968. And then the Pope came out with a letter in 1968 saying that the traditional Catholic teaching would be maintained, that all contraception, artificial contraception is against God's will and is therefore intrinsically sinful, which is something that was not well received by most Catholics. And so I think that's one of the things that, one of the elements of all of this is you already have a well-known church teaching that huge majorities of Catholic people did not accept and did not follow in their everyday life. And everybody knows it, you know. One of my, this is one of my favorite stories from when I was a priest. Um, I was working with, uh, you know, 
did I did a lot of weddings when I was when I was a priest, and I, I want to be really careful here, not to uh, not to uh, say anything improper. But you know, one of the standard questions there were there were these like standard forms I had to walk through with every couple that was getting married, and questions that you had to ask and write down what their answers were. One of the questions was, "Do you understand the church's teaching regarding marriage and family planning?" and the church's teaching on contraception. And I always prefaced it. I said, I'm going to ask you this question because it's here that I have to ask you this question. I'm going to be very clear what I'm asking. I'm asking you, do you understand the church's teaching? Not do you intend to follow. I'm not going to ask you if you intend to follow the church's teaching. I'm not going to ask you if you believe the church's teaching. I'm going to ask you understand it. Right. And, of course, when you phrase it that way, people say yes, and I write down, they said yes. Because that is what the question was. That is what the question was. Whereas, okay, <laughs> and I remember I, yeah. This one, and I remember this one, this one couple, and, and, and the guy was, and, and you, had to, you, had to do, you had to do them separately with the, with, with the bride and the groom. And, and so you know, the, the other wasn't in the room when they were doing this. And, and, and a lot of that was just to sort of, you know, check out and make sure, like, do do both people really want to do this, or is somebody feeling pressure, or somebody being manipulated into this? And so that was, at least, at least that was the practice when I was doing, I don't know if it still is, but, but so I was asking the guy, so I asked the guy this question, he was like, oh yeah, you know, we've absolutely, we've talked about it, and, you know, we've decided that as soon as we get married, we're going to stop using birth control. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I kind of paused, and I was like, I don't think you wanted to tell me that. <laughs> so I'm just going to move on here. You know, but, but, and, I, and I think that was pretty common, I think, among okay. most priests. You know, that it was just sort of like, okay, look, everybody knows what the church's teaching is here, but we all choose to ignore it. And, and I think that, that in itself, I think, is, is, is problematic because— Absolutely. You know, you know, and, and I think you see now, and I you, one of the things you've seen this past summer, especially in addition to the Pennsylvania report, but also the stories that have come out about the former cardinal here in Washington, uh, which is yes. where which is where I am now, who you know sort of it was common knowledge. It was common knowledge even when I was a priest. I, I mean, I remember hearing about this in the mid '90s that you know it was common knowledge that he would that he had a beach house and the seminarians would come to the beach house and uh he would always contrive so that one of them would have to sleep with him Mm. and not have sex with him but just to sleep with him Mm. and you know this is the person who has control over your whole career Mm. and that's sexual harassment absolutely that's not cool and there were lawsuits yes where the dioceses had paid settlements uh, because of this, and it was all kept quiet until this past summer, when there was an accusation that many, many years ago he had abused a minor. And then when that came out, then all of these other things came out as well. And uh, I had not heard, and I don't think it was common knowledge, that he had abused minors, but the, the, the whole seminarian thing was like everybody knew about it. It was people who talked about very, very commonly and openly. Wow. I mean, as long as twenty years ago, I, mean, I, I heard it when I was still a priest, and I left in '96. So I don't know. I don't know when when that was. So and again, I heard it as a rumor, just sort of like, sure. "Hey, do you hear about this?" You know, people talking over dinner, and I, mean, I had no direct knowledge of whether it was true or not, but it was something that was very commonly known. Yeah. And you know, one of the things you've seen now is you've seen a lot of people on the on the right, very far right of the Catholic Church coming out and saying, "Okay, enough of this lying. Enough of this." The thing that we have to talk about is that there are a lot of gay people in the clergy, and they're all liars and hypocrites because we all know that being gay is bad and wrong, and so the problem is the gays. And you see a lot of that right now. You see a lot of that online. I mean, one of the people who has reported on this and who has factually sent a lot of great stuff about this in terms of actually just sort of getting information out is Rod Dreher. Mm-hmm. Um, who some people know wrote the book The Benedict Option. He writes on the American Conservative website. And while he is, I think, rightly outraged at a lot of the hypocrisy that goes on in the Catholic Church on this issue, and in, and, and in other churches too, I mean, he's, he's, he's very clear it's not simply a Catholic problem. But he also, I think, comes at this from the, from the perspective of the problem is the gays. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and and I think it's 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 while the while the church has been a place in some ways a place of refuge for people who had who for whatever reason didn't feel that they were called to a heteronormative life, yes. um, and provided a lot of real opportunities for those people to find socially acceptable outlets to to live 
to live good and wholesome and healthy lives, which is what I thought that I was doing when I went to the seminary. I think this culture of um, this culture of deception that I think has begun to permeate a lot of things within within and again I don't think this is unique to the Catholic Church but things within that that sense of deception within the within within the church um, I think poisons all of it yes. and I think to, to, to blame it strictly on the problem is the Catholic Church isn't being honest with its teaching on homosexuality is 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 really missing the point I agree you know, you know the you know the problem with Cardinal McCarrick or former Cardinal McCarrick you know in Washington is not that he was gay although I mean just sort of based on what sort of came out I'm I'm sure that he is but but that he was not he, he was given a way of living that that allowed him to to do it in a way that was manipulative of others and yes. that was, and that and and it's the manipulation that's the problem it's not the gay part that's the problem and I think absolutely and I think a lot of people who who are gay and who are in the Catholic Church and don't feel that they can speak about it feel that they can't speak out about any of this because they would be sort of outing themselves yeah and you know and, and they don't feel that they can do that and i and i and i and i i i i do feel sympathy for people who are in that position because i think i was there i was there myself at one point and it's just important for, for me at least i you know to feel the freedom now to be able to say this is a broader problem yes um, and it's not it's it's not just about the sexual abuse of minors, uh, which fortunately is not as big of a, a of a problem today as it has been in the past. But this broader sort of culture of not being not being honest about human sexuality because the church has a teaching on human sexuality that most of its members and most of its clergy don't actually really believe. Yes. Is is really is really causing a lot of problems, and you know this is the time for things that were done in darkness to come out into the light, you know, which it always does eventually anyway. And so this is, I, I think, I think, and I th- and I think people in the church are perceiving now that this is this is an opportunity to clean up a lot of things. But I don't think a lot of the people who are in church leadership are really prepared for all of the things that would have to happen to really confront it. And we'll see, you know. We'll see. I mean, they're they're under a lot of pressure right now, and you know, maybe 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 some good things will happen, but I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. This has just been a really really fascinating conversation, and I feel like we could talk about this forever. Um, <laughs> there, it's just so fascinating to me and horrifying, and and it's it's just really really interesting. Um, but thank you, David, so much for coming on to the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, and I uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing, and love your podcast and, and your writing, and uh, best of luck to you as well. Thank you so much. All right, well, that is our show for this week. Uh, as usual, the music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to music. Uh, special thanks goes out to my team, Carson Green and Justin Caleb Bryant, for helping me with all the technical side of the show. Also, uh, if you want to support my work, if you want to support my writing and my work, there are a few ways you can do that. You can give this show five stars on iTunes. You can follow Follow it on iTunes. Just that helps enormously. Please give it five stars and then share it with your friends. Share it on social media. Those are all tangible ways that you can help my work. If you have some extra cash, and I understand that many of us don't, that the struggle is real, but if you do have some income that you would like to share with me, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for just a dollar a month or $5 a month, you will get an extra podcast every week called The House of Heretics, where Justin and I have unedited conversations about life and faith and doubt. This show is a production of Rock Candy Media and is written and edited by me, Stephen Long. And as usual, thanks for listening.